We're delighted this day that we each have been granted the precious opportunity and the privilege to assemble like this. Not only our membership at Pippin, but also the visitors who've come our way this day. We're delighted that you're here and we trust that each of us will be edified and built up in the most holy faith by our being able to assemble like this and that it will in fact glorify most significantly and magnificently the name of our God of heaven. As we continue this morning a series of lessons entitled Glory in the Church, we come to the sixth installment of that series today and it's interesting as we give some thought to some of that which we have considered in the series we have highlighted that remarkable fact that the Christ established but one church. And we've learned some of the features and characteristic matters of that body. We learned where it was established and when it was established and the relationship that it bears to Christ Himself. And we learned the name as it's significantly set forth for us. But as we've looked at all of that, we, at least on our last occasion, last Lord's Day morning, began to give some additional thought to the interesting characteristic of its worship. Does the Bible say anything about the worship of that body, or is its worship solely left to its own discretion? And we began to learn, interestingly, last Lord's Day, that God has detailed and specified the worship. In the language of John 4.24, God is a spirit, and they that worship Him must worship Him in spirit and in truth. The thought then that worship must be in spirit and that it must be in truth helps us to see then that that worship, as we noted then, must be spiritually oriented, meaning that both the truthful aspect and the spirit aspect highlight the features that it must be that which benefits the spiritual part of man. The worship of the church isn't tailored to satisfy the fleshly desires or the fleshly tendencies of the human frame. Rather, it is solely directed first to magnify God through the expression of that spiritual aspect and feature of mankind. And because of that today, let's give a more detailed specification using the Word of God as our guide to the, to the matter of that worship. And this then will be one very critical matter that helps us identify the church which our Christ purchased. As we begin to look at that, some initial remarks might be in order. Some of these built upon the lesson last Lord's Day and thus serve as a reminder, but they will in fact be the driving mechanism for some of these issues which are to follow. As we noted briefly a moment ago, that spiritual thrust that accords to worship is in accordance that in fact seems so distinct from what the human family might have preferred. We often tend to want to lift ourselves up and make ourselves the center of attention and in fact highlight the features that are our preferences when in fact worship doesn't satisfy at all the issues surrounding what would be the fleshly and carnal nature of the human frame. Rather, it is a worship directed first and foremost in spirit and truth and must have as its object the definition presented there at the last part of point number one. Worship, you see, is acts of reverence directed to God. And when you and I appreciate that significance, it removes us as the object completely. Worship isn't for my preference, and it isn't for your desirability. No wonder so much of the human family has erred, inasmuch as worship is often contorted, designed, and set forth in a way that is to the human factor of being pleasing but not so much to God's. 
might we again remember it's God that's worshipped and not us. It is God that's honored and exalted and not we. It is God who is lifted high in worship and placed on the zenith of where He belongs and not us. We are privileged to be able to worship Him. And with that thought said, what about we look then at the Lord's Supper for a moment? The New Testament, of course, highlights some acts of worship. These which, in fact, direct the reverence toward God. And one of the matters of our consideration certainly ought to be that of the Lord's Supper. As we give some thought to it, I prepared a few remarks. And these will also continue to the next slide as well. But might we begin by remembering that it was, of course, on that fateful evening, on the evening prior to our Lord's crucifixion, as He was celebrating the Passover with those apostles in that upper room in Jerusalem, that in fact He instituted what you and I call the Lord's Supper. And oh, what a lasting memorial it was to be. For you and I, some 20 centuries later, still are in a mind-numbing position, at least if we strive to do it rightly as we think, and with our mind's eye return in remembrance to the events that took place. As you give thought to all of that, thinking about all that it signifies and means, some passages might be in order for us to remember. Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John all, in a way, make reference to it, but perhaps Luke's version is the one to which we'll refer to briefly. In Luke 22, verses 19 and 20, we find the words from the lips of our Lord that night, as in fact He put in place the Lord's Supper. And Jesus took bread and gave thanks and broke it and gave unto them and said, This is my body which is given for you, this do in remembrance of me. Likewise also the cup after supper say, This cup is my blood in the New Testament which is shed for many. What a memorial that was, and what a memorial it still is. It consisted of two elements, didn't it? There was that unleavened bread that the Lord said was representative of His body. That was going to be so mutilated, mangled, so inhumanely treated. That cup and its contents thereof in particular, representative of the blood that He shed. That blood that made available the forgiveness of sin, remission thereof, and a rightful standing before the God of heaven. This, this Lord's Supper thus was to be a part of the aspects of that kingdom. Later on in the events of that evening, Jesus expressly said, From henceforth I shall not take of this fruit of the vine until I take it new with you in the kingdom of our Lord, in the kingdom of my Father. And it is as Jesus made a statement like that. He thus pointed to the realization that the acceptance thereof and the participation thereof was to be a vital, essential, and real part of the worship that was to comprise New Testament worship. In addition to those features, that does point us to this, doesn't it? The partaking of the Lord's Supper is thus an important part of worship, isn't it? not to be insignificantly considered, not to be looked upon as if it's unimportant. In fact, in Acts 20 verse 7, we find as the brethren worshipped in the city of Troas, this statement and this commendation of them was made. It says upon the first day of the week, when the disciples came together to break bread. And we, might, we pause immediately to know 
when the disciples came together to break bread on that first day of the week, there was assembly and a central feature and part of it was their partaking of the breaking of bread, the Lord's Supper. And as such, we go on to notice Paul did speak unto them, continuing his speech until midnight. But the business first mentioned was that of the Lord's Supper, wasn't it? And how beautiful it is to think of brethren then and now today who assemble in community, in union, and in love, partaking of this which commemorates the body and blood of the Son of God. Even beyond that, you'll notice... One might in fact argue, as some through the years have done, how often should this in fact be observed? Could one partake of it on one Sunday each month, one Sunday each three months, one Sunday a year? Might we notice the brethren came together to break bread, Acts 20 verse 7, and 1 Corinthians 16 verse 2 says they came together every first day of the week. Putting those two together, we might thus seemingly conclude that it was an every week affair, every first day of every week. We might notice, though, there was a similar commandment given with respect to the Sabbath of the Old Testament, wasn't there? In the fourth of the Ten Commandments, the God of heaven had said, Remember the Sabbath day. It is of note the Lord didn't say every Sabbath day, but is that what He meant? We learn later that's exactly what He meant. In Nehemiah, for example, chapter 10, verses 31 and following, there, there was a rebuke and chastisement presented because they hadn't kept every one of them as God had commanded. May we submit that in the logic we used earlier with regard to their meeting, they gave every first day of the week, but they had met for the purpose of assembling for the Lord's Supper. May you and I ever honor it by appreciating that every week or even every part of a week has a first day, and it should be honored as one participates in the Lord's Supper. It is to be noted, too, that frequency and importance is highlighted as we come full circle. We noted that worship is in spirit and in truth. The Lord's Supper is a critical part that requires us to be spiritually engaged. You'll notice the Lord said, This do in remembrance of me. We need to be remembering something. When we partake of this, it's not a time for a wandering of the mind. It's not a time to be thinking about dinner, this afternoon's ball game, this afternoon's fishing trip, this afternoon's golf game, this afternoon's trip to Walmart. This is a time to remember those events outside the walls of Jerusalem some 2,000 years ago and to remember in vivid vitality the nature of the body of our Savior and the blood that He shed. Paul chastised the church in Corinth because they were abusing this. Now, they were abusing it in more than one way, but one of the things was, he said, many of you are sickly and weak for this reason. You have not participated vitally, appropriately, and as commanded in the participation of the Lord's Supper. May you and I in wisdom remember that our minds should be engaged as we turn our attention in a few moments to the factors of the Lord's Supper. But beyond the matter of the Lord's Supper, what about the collection? We also notice there's another feature of that New Testament worship. The Lord's Supper isn't all of it. We also know the part about the collection. I've listed some passages for us to give consideration to. The work of the church as the New Testament unfolds it involves a number of things. 
There's evangelism, there's edification, there's also benevolence. And as one gives thought to the necessity of funds to carry out that work, God has already made pro proper provision. It is the free will offering of those who are its members. It is to be noted then, in light of that, a number of New Testament verses touch upon the subject of those works. I've highlighted just a few of them. In 2 Corinthians 11, verse 9, Paul to the church in Corinth said that the churches in Macedonia had, had financially supplied him so that while he was laboring in Corinth, he did not need to take any funds from Corinth. We have evangelism thus provided by the funds of the church. In Philippians 4, we find a similar matter in verses 9 and following, where there Paul complimented the church in Philippi and was thankful for their gift to him so that he could continue the labors and efforts. You'll notice in 2 Corinthians chapters 8 and 9, mention is made about the church in Corinth making contribution to the poor saints in Jerusalem and the efforts that would go toward that end. In Romans 15, verse 26, that same thing is mentioned. And in 1 Thessalonians 5, verse 11, we have a highlight to the work of edification that's to take place in the body of Christ. As the money of the Lord is used for any and all of that, it does help us note that this collection and contribution also is such that the frequency is discussed for us in 1 Corinthians 16, beginning in verse number 1. Upon the first day of the week, let every one of you lay by in store as God hath prospered him, that there be no gatherings when I come. We are in a position of noting on the first day of the week, then you and I have the obligation as Christians to lay by in store as you and I have been prospered. And isn't it true in light of that, that this is a powerful contrast to Old Testament reality? In the Old Testament, they were told 10% plus additional sacrifices. It would have been easy, perhaps even tempting, for an individual to just give his 10% and not give a great deal of thought to the provision of God that made that gift possible. In the New Testament, God hasn't specified a dollar amount, but He has put it in words like this, As I've been prospered, as I've purposed in my heart, not grudgingly, or of necessity, but cheerfully. And so it's left to each person, each family, to give thought to what that proper amount would be. But you'll note the spiritual thrust. You and I will give as a reflection of our connection to God. We should remember that the Corinthians and those of that era were highly stated to be in this position. First, they gave of themselves. And when they first gave themselves, the financial part came naturally to follow. Today, what about your giving in mind? Is it spiritually oriented? Do I throw a meager amount in the plate just to satisfy my untrained conscience? Or do I give because I love the Lord and am thankful for what He and His Son have done for me? And as a realization of how thankful I am for the church of which I'm a part. It is to be noted the collection, in fact, challenges us in many ways. And the verses I've listed are those to which we referred a moment ago. Paul did say in verses 6 and 7, that he which soweth sparingly shall also reap sparingly. But he which soweth bountifully shall reap also bountifully. What about your sowing in mind when it comes to the collection? Do we sow bountifully 
or do we sow sparingly? If we give to God a little, we can rest assured that that little shall be returned. But if we give bountifully, God has promised He too shall abundantly bless us mightily, perhaps more than what you and I can readily be prepared to imagine. Spiritually oriented, the collection is, isn't it? It's going to be a measure of the spiritual contact that I feel for God, for His church, and for what His Son has done for me. We've looked so far at the Lord's Supper as well as the collection. Has the New Testament stated anything else beyond those as it relates to worship? What about the devotion to the Word? In fact, that's what you and I are attempting to do presently. But let's cast a bit more spotlight upon the devotion to the Word as it occurs within the pages of the New Testament. Even from the Great Commission onward, there was a rather notable emphasis upon the placement of the Word. All powers given unto me in heaven and in earth. Go ye therefore and teach all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Ghost, teaching them to observe all things whatsoever I have commanded you. And lo, I am with you all way, even unto the end of the world. We might note that there was an element of teaching that preceded baptism, and then there was teaching that succeeded it. Once a person was already then a member of the body, there was a continual need to further instruct, to in further guide, to further teach. And so it is that in the church we also lift high that banner of devotion to the Word as a part of worship. And some of these verses highlight the apostles' seriousness as they approach that subject. The lesson text that Brother Joy read earlier in Acts the second chapter, this was on the birthday of the church when there it says, And they continued steadfastly in the apostles' doctrine, in fellowship, in breaking of bread, and in prayers. They continued steadfastly in the apostles' doctrine. But that doctrine that the apostles proclaimed was the very doctrine over which they, as being baptized in the Holy Spirit and led by the great power of the Holy Spirit, that's what the Lord had given them to preach and teach. They were giving credence to and access to the Word of God. No wonder then when Paul went to the various and sundry places and he preached, he longed for those opportunities by which he could instruct in a public way. And in Acts 20 verse 7, again in that church in Troas, when they gathered to partake of the Lord's Supper... The verse goes on to say, Paul, desiring to part on the morrow, continued his speech until midnight. They had preaching that day. And they listened to an exposition of the Word of God that day. And today, do we still not have the privilege from time to time of listening to expositions of portions of the Word of God, sections thereof, other passages that touch upon all of that? In 1 Thessalonians 2 verse 13 Paul, as he addressed that church in Thessalonica, he said, For the which cause also thank me God without ceasing, because when ye receive the word of God, which ye heard of us, ye received it not as the word of men, but as it is in truth, the word of God, which effectually also worketh in you that believe. The church in Thessalonica thus heard that word and took it for that which it was, the word of God. Today, it is again not a trivial feature of our worship to give thought to this, is it? It is a central matter because it's the guiding light to our life. It is the only book that God ever wrote. And as such, it's the only book that will lead from here to heaven.
No wonder then we should in fact longingly desire that aspect of the worship in which a portion of it is discussed and expounded, in which sections of it are used to challenge you and me. Sometimes preaching does involve that which hurts me, for example, because I need to change something. My life is found to be in disagreement or in disaccord with its holy precepts. It's not the Word that must change. It's me. And perhaps you find yourself in also those similar predicaments. In each of these ways, as you give thought to the instruction that Paul gave to those New Testament preachers like Titus and like Timothy, what was some of the instruction that he, by inspiration, bequeathed unto them? We might well begin by looking at Ephesians 4.15. As Paul addressed that church in Ephesus, he said, Preach the word in love. As that person who in teaching of a Bible class or in the proclamation of a sermon does so with a love for the Word of God and a love for the souls of humanity, it is thus an appreciation that that is a noble position in which to be. It was to Timothy in 2 Timothy 3, beginning in verse 15, Paul gave this discussion. He said, And from a child thou hast known the Holy Scriptures, which are able to make thee wise unto salvation through faith which is in Christ Jesus. All Scripture is given by inspiration of God, and is profitable for doctrine, for reproof, for correction, for instruction in righteousness, that the man of God might be perfect, thoroughly furnished unto all good works. I charge thee therefore before God and the Lord Jesus Christ, who shall judge the quick and the dead at his appearing in his kingdom, preach the word. Be instant in season, out of season, reprove, rebuke, exhort with all longsuffering and doctrine, for the time will come when they will not endure sound doctrine. But after their own lusts shall they heap to themselves teachers having itching ears, and they shall turn away their ears from the truth and shall be turned into fables. But watch thou in all things, endure affliction, make full proof of thy ministry, for the time of my departure is at hand. At that point, Paul now concludes, at least in a way, he says, I have fought a good fight. I have finished my course. I have kept the faith. Henceforth that there is laid up for me a crown of righteousness, which the Lord, the righteous judge, shall give me at that day, and not to me only, but unto all of them also that love is appearing. Timothy, note this point. You preach the word, because on that day of judgment, not only shall the crown of life be enjoyed by me, but all of those who love is appearing, and all of those who have appreciated the word that you've preached in truth and who've obeyed it rightly, and who've lived in compliance with it. There's the point of gospel preaching, isn't it? That's why it is not an insignificant part of our worship. It is a presentation of the guiding light that will lead from here to heaven. With regard to that word, you perhaps you might note one final passage in Titus 2.15. Another preacher here, Titus, Paul said, Speak the things which adorn sound doctrine. Let no man despise thy youth. It is a wonderful consideration to notice the lovely features that surround the issues and the power of the proclamation of the word of truth. As you'll note the bottom, there is also a spiritual thrust involved in it as well. That spiritual thrust relating to the love that you and I have for the word of God. Oh, how love I thy law, it is my meditation all the day. Thy word is very pure, therefore thy servant loveth it. Verses 97 and 140 of Psalm 119. 
when you and I think about the word that way, we will look forward to the opportunities to hear it taught, to hear it expounded, to hear it discussed. And so it is that those latter verses challenge us that this is a vital part of worship even as well. In the next place, what about the offering of prayers? To this point, we've mentioned the devotion to the Word, we've mentioned the Lord's Supper, and we've also mentioned the collection. What about the avenue of prayer and the scriptures that surround its presentation? Of course, many could be listed, but maybe these will at least whet our appetite for that which the scriptures teach concerning it. Men ought always to pray and not to faint. That famous statement of Luke 18, 1. Pray without ceasing, Paul's glorious refrain of 1 Thessalonians 5, 17. But as we give thought to the nature of prayer and worship, Paul gave a dissertation on that subject in 1 Timothy 2. In fact, in beginning in verse number 8 of that chapter, he specifically affirmed that it's the men who in a mixed assembly are to be the ones that lead those public prayers, but that even the men should do so lifting up holy hands. A man who is privileged to lead prayer should have recognized the fact he has at least attempted to lead a life directed by the precepts of the Word of God and so can live in a way that can be a good example to others. It's hypocritical to live a life of worldly character through the week and do so with purpose and yet on Monday lead a public prayer in a worship assembly. Those who lead prayer should realize the responsibility that's theirs and strive to set a proper conducted example so that others can tune into that prayer and that all could give a hearty amen at the conclusion of it. 1 Corinthians 14, verses 15 and 16. With regard to those prayers, though, might we notice that there is a need for orderliness in prayer just as there is for the other acts of worship. That orderliness highlighted in 1 Corinthians 14, verses 34 and 40. But that orderliness is perhaps noted for us as we think about the great value that is yours and mine in prayer. Prayer is not just a rote activity just to say we've done it. We are approaching the throne of the great being of the God of heaven. And as such, He's the one that created all of this universe and everything in it. He's the one that reigns in regal majesty over all of it. And He is the one who by His power could end it all in a moment if He so chose. That's the God that we worship and the one to whom we're addressing prayer. Sometimes those give great accord to people on earth like a prime minister or a governor or a president. And there's no question that men may occupy great roles among men, but those pale in comparison to God. And in our prayers, we should thus humbly petition Him with a tremendous respect for who it is we're addressing. Prayer isn't like talking to our best friend. It's not like talking to someone who might be another acquaintance or associate upon earth. This is God. In Psalm 89, verse 7, God is greatly to be feared in the assembly of the saints and to be had in reverence of all them that are about Him. Psalm 89, verse 7. As we can appreciate that attribute of prayer, isn't it true how great the rewards are for you and me? Cast thy burden upon the Lord, and He shall sustain thee. He shall never suffer the righteous to be moved. Psalm 55, verse 22. 
casting all your cares upon him, for he careth for you, 1 Peter 5, 7. The, uh, the eyes of the Lord are in every place, beholding the evil and the good, Proverbs 15, 3. The eyes of the Lord, in fact, are over the righteous, and his ears are open unto their prayers, 1 Peter 3, 12. All of that helps us appreciate the text of Revelation 8, verse 4. Your prayers and mine come up like sweet-smelling incense, reverberating in the halls of heaven before the throne of God. You see, we should have the appreciation. Our prayers rise far above this ceiling. They, in fact, come before the throne of the great God of heaven. No wonder our prayers are serious. And it's no wonder that the effectual, fervent prayer of a righteous man availeth much, James 5, verse 16. It is in light of all of that we come to part number six, the music that is involved in singing. As we give thought to worship, it has perhaps ever been the case that music and worship seem to go hand in hand. In a heart that's filled with thanksgiving to God, and in a heart that's filled with appreciation and unity for the greatness of God, one seems almost naturally to wish to sing. And so often the Old Testament makes mention of such. There's Psalm 95, beginning in verse 1, Psalm 96, verse 9, Psalm 92, verses 1 and 2, First, First Chronicles, chapters 4, 5, 16, and 23. But our interest today, of course, is the New Testament matter of worship and the placement that music has in it. There is supposed to be and there must be music in worship. But what kind of music is it and how must it be offered? It is, in fact, a stroke of divine genius that God has specified this. And it is not a lifeless instrument. 1 Corinthians 14, 7. It is, in fact, the fruit of our lips giving thanks unto God. Hebrews 13, verse 15. Expressed in texts like these, speaking to yourselves in psalms and hymns and spiritual songs, singing and making melody in your heart to the Lord. That text of Ephesians 5, 19 has a companion passage in Colossians 3, 16. Let the word of Christ dwell in you richly in all wisdom, teaching and admonishing one another in psalms and hymns and spiritual songs, singing with grace in your hearts to the Lord. We notice that singing has not only been mentioned, it has been identified. Thus, the music of worship has been specified, and as you and I notice them, isn't it amazing that, again, it is spiritual in thrust? The ultimate underlying motivation, notice spiritual hymns, songs. We should be singing messages of truth, and we should be laudably presenting messages that come from the nature of the grandeur of what God has presented. Those should occupy the matters of our songs. In fact, many of the songs in our book are patterned after one or more passages in the text. And that is perfectly reasonable and it's perfectly wonderful. No wonder as we sing them, our mind can rush back and think about teachings found in appropriate places in the Word of God. When we give thought to this matter of singing, might we notice that the admonition is for us to teach and admonish as we sing. May we never forget that when we sing, we're teaching someone else. We're admonishing other people who are here gathered. Singing isn't just for my benefit, though I enjoy it. And singing also has the beautiful characteristic of adoring and honoring God, but it also teaches the others who hear the words of that song. 
Some of the best sermons ever preached are in the words of a song. No wonder then we should sing with the Spirit and with the understanding, 1 Corinthians 14, 15, and do so with the express desire of the unity found in the words of those songs. That leads us to the final and closing point of our lesson this morning. We have looked at five elements of worship, and these comments are those that perhaps we'll use to embed in our thinking some of the features concerning the, the attributes of worship. Worship is not simply a byproduct of our life. As Christians, it's a central part of who we are and what we are to be doing. Worship is something to which we should look forward. It is an opportunity and yea, a privilege in that specified time to extol unto God our heartfelt thanksgiving and feeling for who He is and what He has done and what He continues to do. And we do that as we partake of the Lord's Supper, as we give as we've been prospered. We do so as we offer in prayer the thoughts of our heart. We also do that by way of devotion to the Word and as we sing songs of praise unto Him. And in those five, we have a full listing, an exhaustive one, of the New Testament elements of worship. God hasn't authorized any others. As we give our attention to each of them, may we thus not degrade any of them. Maybe you've known of someone who thinks that one part is so much more important than all the others that they can give their attention to that one and then daydream through the rest of it. Friends, that's not scriptural. And we each understand that, I think. But as we give thought to the significance of all of them, our mental engagement must be involved in every one of them. No wonder that they that worship the Father must do so in spirit and in truth. And that includes all of these. What about your worship today? Are you able to worship God in truth and in spirit because of the nature of your relation to Him? If you've never become a Christian, then you can't partake rightly of the Lord's Supper because you have at this point not expressed any appreciation for the Lord's blood and His body. If you aren't a Christian, the Lord hasn't promised to hear your prayers. Maybe that's enough to help us see. Will you not think urgently today about your status before God? Are you a member of the body of Christ? Are you a faithful member of the body of Christ? If we could assist you in your initial obedience today, why not today? The baptismal waters behind me are warm. There's a whole group of people more than excited to celebrate with you. If we could assist you in your obedience to the gospel today, these matters are required of you by the statements of Scripture. Believe Jesus to be the Son of God, repent of your sins, confess His name as the Son of God, and be baptized. If we could assist you in that, we would be happy to do it. If though you've become a member of the body but no longer are faithful, maybe worship has become just a rote tradition, just something you do a couple of times a week. Maybe there seems to be no meaning any longer in it for you. That identifies the fact that you have a spiritual problem. You need to begin to make things right, but may I suggest you can't do that alone. Jesus is the great physician. One of our songs, in fact, states that. He is the great physician. He has the words and the right prescription that can heal that malady. You need to come back to Him today, confess that error, pray to Him for forgiveness, and as we all pray on your behalf, He has promised to forgive. If we can do that today, why not let us do that? Brother Harold has chosen him of encouragement, and if we could be of assistance to you, let it be known, if you would, while together we stand and while we sing.